the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My name is Father Matt. I'm one of the rectors here. We continue to use Dr. Wilde Gaffney's Women's Lectionary this year as an experiment of how to hear the scriptures anew. Today we hear from Jesus in Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount, to watch out for false prophets. We're told we'll know them by their fruit. What we learn about false prophets in Matthew's gospel and other places is that they seem to have the right doctrine. They, they seem to say Jesus is Lord. And they do miracles. But they're wolves in sheep's clothing. There's other places that Paul talks about this same issue in the church. Most notably 1 Corinthians 13 where he says, If I speak in the tongues of angels, and I have the power to move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Same dynamic, right? Apparently, in Jesus' day, it was not uncommon for people to be super smart and super impressive, but be giant idiots. They appear one way, sheep, but inside they are another, they're ravenous wolves. False prophets then aren't dangerous because they'll teach you wrong or be unable to do impressive things, but because they hurt people. This is important. They don't know the way of love. How are we supposed to evaluate fruit, though, if they are sweet talkers? If they can do impressive, powerful, even godly things. Father Spencer can tell you after the service, just ask him. We can learn a few things, though, about the way of love and the lifestyle of these false prophets, I think, from the way that Dr. Gaffney has organized our text today. That's why I'm I'm glad she included 1 Samuel and the Romans 12 passage because they help us navigate how false prophets are ravenous wolves and the kind of fruit, the kind of beautiful fruit we're to look for, appreciate, and cultivate together. Today, we proclaim the good news that God's kingdom is, uh, in God's kingdom, great sermons and impressive LinkedIn pages are garbage apart from love. Love is the beautiful fruit, the best kind, really. And let us commit ourselves then to learn how God's love works and be impressed by that, tasting its fruit together. Let's talk about these false prophets for a second. These evildoers have certain practices that we can see in 1 Samuel Saul sees David as a threat to eliminate. And so what does Saul do? Saul decides to use his daughters as political weapons against his enemy. Notice, way back in this day, how women were used as pawns in the intrigues of powerful men. Their bodies given to other men as weapons. 
Merab endures a broken engagement. Micah, Michael loves David, but later endures the dissolution of her marriage. This is later in the story, she's given away to a foreign king. And then taken from that foreign king years later, given back to David, while the other guy weeps. And Michael is never the same. So she keeps getting jerked around by kings who control what happens to her body. We see in this text, those with less or no power suffer more severely under people who act like false prophets. They don't protect, they pray. They don't empower, they exploit. They don't respect agency, they abuse it. And if they can't pray, exploit, abuse, they eliminate. No one is vilified more in a Christian setting than the less powerful person who accuses a false prophet of wrongdoing. It's bad for them normally, but if they try to get any kind of justice or accountability, all hell breaks loose. But today we proclaim that in God's kingdom, great sermons and impressive LinkedIn pages are garbage apart from love. Love is the beautiful fruit, the best kind, really. Let us commit ourselves then to learn how God's love works and be impressed by that, tasting its fruit together. So women, children, sexual minorities, disabled people, neurodivergent people, anybody who doesn't fit the uh, standard, quintessential, valorized norm are more in danger when powerful people misuse power. In Romans 12, we get this beautiful picture of what love lives like, how it works. But for a moment, just to fill out this false prophet picture, <laughs> let's consider the opposite of what Paul says, just for, a, just for fun. We've got six minutes to kill. <laughs> let's get a picture of how the spirit of false prophecy works. You see, a false prophet is insincere and full of pretense. Is just the opposite of love here in Romans 12. Committed to evil, dishonors others using shame to control them and improve their position. They treat a close, small number of people like family, and the rest, the rest are them are, are theirs to, to use as they see fit. They're self-focused, unwelcoming. It's everyone for themselves, after all. One man's ruin is another man's gain. They curse those who curse them. And get revenge. They're emotionally distant, cut off from others, not able or willing to be a resonating witness to pain or joy. They think they're better than others, create hierarchies of influence and authority. They don't sit with the lowly. They charm them and recruit them, then use the lowly to do their bidding. They want to spend time with the most important people in the room. They avoid low-status hangs. They think they're the smartest person in the room. They pay back the slightest offense with equal or greater measure. They create division and conflict for their personal benefit. They take everything they can personally and let other people have it. Defend themselves at all costs. Don't ever be wrong in public. Punish every whisper of disloyalty. Painstakingly clarify every misunderstanding people have of you so that you can manage your persona meticulously. If your enemy's hungry, starve them out. 
If they're thirsty, let them die of dehydration. Weakness is when you pounce. The only way to stop an evil person is with more evil. The end justifies the means. It's a race to the top, and it doesn't matter how you get there. This describes a false prophet, I would say, using Jesus' language. It also describes the logic that runs our current political economy. (laughs) It's the logic of mammon. The reason I spent, not six minutes, but, you know, maybe three, to fill that out is because when we hear love as a command, we are missing the power and the work that love wants to do. Friends, love is nothing less than an alternative political economy. Love isn't a behavior to do. Love is a different way of organizing who we are as humans, how power works, what people are for. What does it mean to have a possession? What is wealth? Love love claims all of that under its regnancy. Love claims all of that under its regnancy, under its power, and says, I want to reorder and reorganize this. So when Paul's writing a letter to Rome and he spends verse after verse like extolling the virtue of love, he isn't just saying behave better, be nice. He's saying this is how you live in the epicenter of imperial empire and oppose it. People aren't to be competitors for social capital and status. They are to give, uh, but honor is for those who uh, give honor away. People are to be loved, not used or competed with or exploited or eliminated. Paul's laying down a declaration of independence. This is the Magna Carta of the kingdom of God. So love consists, just just for example, from Romans 12, love consists of honor, economics, and inclusion, Paul says. Who has clout? Who matters? Who do we value? Who do we esteem? In our world, in Rome's world, it was people who are wealthy, who are intelligent, who are eloquent, who are attractive. Did I miss anything? Who smell good? (laughs) But who has clout in the kingdom of God in this alternative political economy of love? Those who give honor away. Those who honor others more than themselves. What a terrifyingly subversive act. Economics. Who can eat? Well, in our world, it's if you have access to grocery stores. Right? If you don't live in a food desert. Yeah? But who can eat in this alternative political economy of love in God's kingdom? Well, Paul says to contribute to everyone's needs, to welcome strangers. You see how love matters for, like, who has access to food? 
Who, who isn't excluded? Who belongs? Right? In the world, you have to... Uh, usually the best way to create a, belong, a sense of belonging in a group of people is to find another group of people who don't. And then stir up fear and resentment and anger at that group of people. We feel like we belong when we all hate the same person. And we can then speak in code words. I don't even have to say, you know, remember we hate, you know, people from Portugal. I can use a code word for people from Portugal so we all know what I'm talking about. This may happen today still. But Paul says to, to be happy with those who are happy and to have pain with those who are in pain. To empathetically resonate. To belong to everyone. To be with and for everyone. Love doesn't track personal offenses, but leaves room for God to rectify things. Love is quick to stand with the oppressed, to oppose injustice done to others, to not seek revenge when wrong is done. Notice how love focuses on the injustice done to other people rather than love keeping account of the wrong done to me. This is one of the most um, clear litmus tests for is love in operation or not. Am I, am I make, keeping an account for all the wrongs done to me and then using my power to get my way? Or am I leveraging my power and my accounting on behalf of other people who have it worse than me? Just notice. Notice that. There's so much more to say about love. But let me get to what this means. Love is the sum of the law and the prophets. It's the perfect law of liberty. It's a big deal around here. If you're new, you're going to hear a lot about it. Sorry if you sat through a half dozen VBSs on love as a kid. You're still going to hear more about it. So, but we have to reclaim that love is not just a command, it's a lifestyle. It wants to, love wants to infiltrate our way of life, our paradigms, our bodies, our interactions. So you'll hear me say things like, this is how love works. you hear us say things like, love has a logic and a shape to it. What we're trying to say when we say that is, don't just think that this is do more, try harder, be better. That's not what we're saying. But, but we're, kind of at the, we're kind of at the end of our language when it comes to talking about these things because we don't normally talk about them. So... I'm up for suggestions if you have better ways to talk about it. Most of us also have lived and moved and had our beings in a world that loves and celebrates and valorizes and elects false prophets. Some of them even become pastors. So, our instincts and assumptions and motivations and desires and common senses have been formed separate from love. So this is a reclamation project for us, for me. That's the first thing. The second thing is how we organize, what we celebrate, how we relate. It's all part of it. There's no sermon on love that can fix this for us. For years, um, I've lived conflicted, personally, between feeling like I had to be a certain kind of person in order to be a leader and feeling guilty or embarrassed by carrying power that way. I remember, I remember, <laughs> I remember in seminary, 
I took this personality test, and the guy who was leading the pastoral leadership class looked at my results, and I'll never forget this sentence. He said, well, your results show that you probably can never be a senior pastor, but you may make a decent youth pastor. And I, I'm 28, and I don't know, there's so much I don't know at this point in my life, but I remember thinking, that's crap. That whole sentence is crap. <laughs> Everything about that sentence is wrong. But, but, uh, that his test and his frame is indicative of something that lives in me. The amount of shame I felt because I'm not type A. Because I'm not an alpha male. Even as far back as, as like elementary school is mountainous. I'm committed, though, to, to ridding those instincts and assumptions in my body because here's what I find. Women and children and sexual minorities and ethnic minorities and disabled people and those of lower socioeconomic classes, etc., suffer when I give in to those instincts. Those instincts be damned. Finally, there's a temptation in naming how false prophets uh, work in our world is a temptation that I have, maybe you can relate, that we will just seek to justify ourselves over and against false prophets. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like those false prophets, right? That kind of thing. In particular, the rash of pastoral and spiritual abuse that's come to light over the last 10 years in the Protestant world is awful, and probably just a fraction of the actual harm that's been caused, just a fraction. I don't think there's one person here who hasn't been touched by that, either personally or knowing someone you love who's experienced that. So we need to name and denounce that. In ourselves, in others, we need to name and denounce it and take responsibility for how we've contributed, participated, and tolerated it. Those of us who are endowed with responsibility and authority, who wear collars and crosses and have credentials hanging on their wall, we have a greater responsibility than the rest. But we can't simply scapegoat. I can't just stand up here and say, Mark Driscoll, huh? What a jerk bag. <laughs> because, friends, you don't overcome evil with evil. You overcome evil with good. And this is where the stake in the ground is for good. We are going to learn how to love each other, come heaven or high water. And we are going to make it tangible livable, attractive, redemptive, and scandalous. I'm, we're going to overcome evil with good or we're going to die trying. So may love make us an increasingly immune and allergic people who laugh in the face of abuse. I would love it if on my worst day I do something, I, I'm a C-minus pastor, and and no, people are like, what are you doing? Are you okay? Do you need a nap and a snack? <laughs> I mean, if we can become a kind of people who just call BS BS as soon as we see it, and then love the person who's acting like a cotton-headed and any muggins. May we all learn to esteem and honor Christ's love in our midst, and may we defeat evil with this good as we taste this beautiful fruit together. In the name of the Father and the Son.
Holy Spirit.